everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the Baseball Experience Podcast, the number one baseball podcast for exciting and passionate fan debate and opinion regarding the game, its strategies, statistics, philosophies, rules, and more. I'm your host, Cody, here along with my brother and co-host, Chris, and you are listening to 2020 Season 2, Episode 4, number 9 overall, and today we have a nice set of topics for you. Chris, uh, you want to give a rundown of what those are? Yeah, so today's topics are going to be a little bit more of an open discussion on statistics and where kind of they fall into place when we're looking to either measure or use them to quantify a player's ability in the game of baseball. My kind of question would be, what is kind of the set panel used in order to quantify someone getting into the Hall of Fame? So I know we have so many statistics and it's so easy to, you know, accumulate data to where we have almost every single play, throw, catch, everything that's done on the field is tracked some sort of way. But now we need to use what statistics should be almost like a benchmark for what is permissible into the Hall of Fame. I know there's different things that people like to hold on to. And just kind of going over, of course, the first and foundational ones like we've talked about is average ERA. We've touched on war in the show as well. These are just some of the things that are used to get them ultimately there. With that, there are some things that come into a little bit of a, not a red flag, but some things that come to a halt. You want to be able to have those players in there, but sometimes those players don't always have this long 20-year span career where they were just right out of the gates, guns blaring, like Mike Trout. He's been a consistent player ever since he came up in the league. Pretty much the same thing with Bryce Harper, even though if people like to criticize his offense or playing, he does have a you know some attitude here and there, but he does have that little bit of swagger and does get it done. He's still hitting over 20 plus bombs every season. So he is a player that is a little bit different of a niche. Others can struggle a little bit in order to get their, their mark or their page in history. Some different kind of players that come to my mind, Derek Jeter from the Yankees. He's a player that was someone who was always getting on base, protecting the outside corner, going the other way. He wasn't really trying to juice his numbers to where he's hitting home runs all the time. He took what he could get and was selective with his pitching or pitch selection, I I should say. But he used that to his abilities. He knew he was able to handle those harder pitches, maybe out of the zone sometimes. And he was still able through, you know, an accumulation of years to be an incredible player that was going into the Hall of Fame here. So he kind of, even with his defense, had a coined phrase of doing the jump throw. So on defense, that kind of made him stand out as a great defensive player. And almost everyone in baseball from Little League growing up into high school and college would start to mimic that because it became so iconic. And it was something that he phrases almost himself. So not only did he have a pretty good, consistent career, to say the least, but he also coined some cool plays. And even the one where he threw it, I believe, to Posada at home plate where he cut the ball off from a throw from right field and threw it to home plate to get the out. I believe it was against Giambi on the A's at that time. But just some incredible heads up baseball plays that make him stand out. Those are little things. And even piggybacking, I know I'm going on to another Yankee here, but Reggie Jackson, Mr. October, he he did something. He Nonetheless, he had a great career as well, but he had something where was no one almost had done this and no one has. He was able to hit three home runs on three pitches on three different at-bats in the same game. So he is the only player to do that. And this happened on October 18th, 1977. 
in a World Series game, number six against the Los Angeles Dodgers. Not even the late great Babe Ruth had accomplished something like this. It's something where that type of play is seen as something that is kind of not fragmented, but a, a highlight. It's, it's something that we won't see very often. It truly is an incredible feat. And Babe Ruth had hit also three home runs in a single World Series game, and he had also done it twice. It's something where it's it's quite the feat, and it shows just how a standout game or, or few games could really highlight a player's career. And not to juxtapose anyone lower or still making their accumulation, but it goes to show you we need to have not only a set panel of things that measure great success, but also something to measure certain games and highlighted careers, and, and something like a pitcher getting complete games if. One pitcher's had 10 complete games, but has, you know, a low amount of wins or a, a little bit higher ERA from it in a different portion of his career. It truly doesn't measure. And I think that's why we're getting a little stuck even with quantifying or using certain statistics to get players into the Hall of Fame. So it's kind of hard to label a certain panel on it. What would your ideas kind of be on that, Cody? In terms of getting into the Hall of Fame, I think baseball still sticks to its roots pretty well when it comes to the statistics it uses to determine that? Well, maybe I should rephrase because I think the people voting, there is much deliberation among all the writers on what they are using to evaluate the players. But the point that I was trying to get to there is that when you look at the Hall of Fame plaques, though, the descriptions of the players heart back to traditional statistics, the old school stats, the batting average, the home runs, the RBIs, and wins for pitchers, you know, stats like that. And and I'll and I'll give you an example and I'll read off a couple of the plaques from our most recent Hall of Fame class from 2019. Uh, 2020 has been voted on. They just due to the coronavirus this year has been postponed until next year. But so for example, Mike Mussina on his plaque, it reads with command of both sides of the plate and a diverse repertoire delivered consistent excellence in a career spent entirely in the powerhouse AL East division recorded 270 wins and a 638 winning percentage. And it goes on for a few other things. And then notched eight seasons with 17 or more victories, including 18 in 1992, his first full year, and 20 in his final campaign. So here on the plaque, we know from our discussions in previous episodes that wins are outdated. They're not being used to evaluate players. But here on a Hall of Fame plaque, it's there is the prominent feature and display of his accolades. So it gets a little confusing, I think. And the same goes for uh, Roy Halladay. We'll go through his real quick. Top of rotation workhorse blended a blistering sinking fastball with pinpoint control, earning Cy Young awards in both the AL and the NL 8 uh, and NL, excuse me, eight-time All-Star delivered a 659 winning percentage, 203 career victories, and three 20-win seasons. You know, there you go again. It's focusing on the wins that he accumulated as a starter. And arguably, you know, if you go back to the roots of baseball, that was the yardstick used to measure starting pitchers. And we just know now, at least the way we evaluate starters, we don't really care about wins. But in order to get into the Hall of Fame, it kind of seems like it's a different story. And just one thing to kind of interject with that, just to give a, a comment on it. Do you think that's because this sport has become a little bit more individualized with players, managers of teams wanting their individual players that they spend a little bit more on to do better and not have some of these kind of lower end areas there? Or do you think it's, you know, just because wins is something where your whole team was able to 
you know, work together in order to accomplish, you know, that one feat together. And your pitcher is definitely included every single pitch. So I think that may even have a little effect. But what do you think about that? Well, I think in terms of today's game, we're not valuing it because we know wins are not a complete measure of the type of pitching performance a pitcher may have, especially now that there's such a heavy reliance on the bullpens and the starting pitchers are not going as deep into games as they once were. So they're less in control of the outcome of the game because the average length of a start last year, I believe, was about five and a third, maybe a little more. And I don't know what you'd have to go back to to, to look at, but and I, I don't think it was it would be that long ago to see that that average was probably a little bit higher. And I'm sure each decade it was a little bit higher, at least until a certain point. You know, there's some good baseball stories out there of those who pitched even more than nine innings and came away with a loss or whatever. So that was just a different brand of baseball. What we're seeing on the plaques is kind of a different representation of maybe actual pitching performance or playing performance from a position player standpoint, because those are still harping on accomplishments of batting average and RBIs. For instance, Harold Baines, it's reading, it's right there, total 2,866 hits, nothing against hits, and drove in 1,628 runs. Those are RBIs, right? So that's something that, you know, we tend to discount those on, I guess, a a smaller sample size or scale year to year. But it seems like in order to get into the Hall of Fame, sometimes those traditional stats really stand out because even though in the case of RBIs, for instance, even though that's a stat of opportunity, you have to be pretty good in order to accumulate a large number of RBIs. And while there's many factors that go into your ability to do that, I think overall, you have to have a consistent high-level performance in order to achieve that. That would be my opinion on that. I think that's maybe why when we're talking about something like the Hall of Fame, where it's not just good and great players, these are elite and legendary players that are going in, or at least they should be, that's where those statistics are still kind of standing strong, it seems like. Yeah, seems like almost foundational statistics will be still used as a stepping stone for them to get in. And it seems like still the Hall of Fame is kind of picking out what accolades or highlights they do want to choose from your career, which is, I think, a good way to do it. But I think it does leave some baseball fans a little disconnected from understanding what truly quantifies someone to go in the Hall of Fame. It's just basically the baseball writers panel. So for other people, it may be a little bit more difficult to decipher certain statistics that they acquire. But I think we are understanding and moving in the right direction. And maybe this is even a good step to take a look back at baseball while we're going through these times in order to see really just taking that year off if there's any ways we can change. I know like we've talked on the show, there's so many different implementations of new things. I think this little break in baseball and a little, hopefully just a late start in the season because of COVID-19, that we are able to still get some type of baseball play in throughout the year. But nonetheless, if we do have to take a step back, it will hopefully give some teams and some players and panels some time to kind of rethink about the game as well, because we are probably going to have to implement new types of even player watching, going to the game, and so forth like that. So it'll definitely be interesting. And I do believe we are going to have something fun, and fans are definitely going to be excited coming out into the forefront. So I think we'll move this little segment on to the next. We're going to start on 
basically statistics regarding international and amateur level play and how they kind of revolve around that. So do you want to take the lead on this one first? Sure. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll kick it off here. Uh, so the point I wanted to make with this really, and we touched on it a little bit in our last episode, but the perceived gap between international play and major league play, I think is starting to shrink. Although I think baseball is probably going to be hesitant to admit that or accept it in some way. And it's not every league, but I think other international leagues are starting to catch up at least enough to where you can almost evaluate them in a different way and make that process easier for the translation over into the majors. You know, we still maintain our style of play. Um, so the stats that are telling the stories of the players overseas may not fully capture. And like any other league, there's always the possibility of acquiring a bust, which is really kind of, at least from a drafting standpoint and signing standpoint, what you're trying to avoid, obviously, because there's a lot of money at stake when it comes to this. But I do think that's starting to shrink a little bit. However, I did have a couple points that I did want to bring up regarding the amateur level, just to give a sense of that. Basically, I pulled from a couple sources. It wasn't quite what I was looking for, just because the number of years that these articles used kind of grouped that information together, but that's okay. It still gives a good enough sense. So the first one I pulled was from a 2017 article by Richard Karcher from the uh, Society of American Baseball Researchers, Saber, which is actually where we get the Saber metrics. Just a little fun fact there. So you can go to saber.org and find this. Um, but so he used uh, a timeline, two different timelines where he grouped the player stats regarding the amateur draft. And so it first started in 1965. And so what he did, he went from 1965 to 1995 and then 1996 to 2011. So he grouped those two periods as uh, the two time periods he was comparing. What he came up with, and he, he breaks it down in a few different ways, out of the players drafted it in those two time periods, 95.8% were signed uh, from the first time period, and then 97.2% were signed from the draft of the second time period. So a little bit higher. However, the number of players reaching the big leagues, which was basically set very loosely at a single at bat or appearance, was 67% and 66.7% respectively for each of those. So that's actually matched up pretty well. Two thirds of the players. But the, the bigger point of it there is that only two thirds of the players are ever getting to the point of getting a single at bat or appearance. He does a further breakdown where a player has played at least three seasons because, let's face it, a singlet pat isn't really much to talk about, right? The second article was a little more recent, 2019, from Baseball America by J.J. Cooper. He took a slightly different look at it, and the number of players from the draft, so he looked at it in total, and so the number in total from the draft that gets signed uh, that end up making it, and this data is from 1981 to 2010, was only 17.6% of players who were drafted and signed ended up making it to the majors. He didn't really define you know, how he measured making it uh, like the other article, at least not that I recall. If he did, I'm, I'm sorry, I apologize. But that's, that's a very low percentage of players who get drafted and signed. Now, there's a big deal and a big difference between where you get drafted. So obviously, the earlier rounds tend to do better, in which case, first round picks can expect to reach the major leagues more often than those coming later. And so first round picks who don't make it are actually an exception. And so from 1981 to 2010, based on 
the collection of data that he had, 73% of first round picks reached the majors. And then specifically in 2004, only two of the 29 first round picks who signed failed to make it. That one's actually pretty good, 93% success right there. But you'll see it's a very precipitous drop off the later and later that you go into the draft. But that's, that's an area I'm sure baseball will be very much interested in to improve because there's obviously players that do make it. And if possible, you know, you do want to capitalize on finding those Mike Piazza's and Mark Grace's that get taken so late in the draft. And in Piazza's case actually goes on to have a hall of fame career. So to find those diamonds in the rough, that's a big deal. And I imagine the next statistical revolution, I guess, or whatever kind of revolution it is, will try to capitalize on proving that efficiency. Yeah, and I definitely agree. It's always a great story to hear when a late draft pick does end up making it to the big leagues. And I believe it was either last year or the year before, there was another gentleman in the minor leagues. I believe it was 18 or 20 seasons in the minor leagues he had. Something just outrageous like that before he made his first big league appearance. It just shows you sometimes, yes, it is that opportunity. Those those first round picks are getting the cream of the crop because they did showcase their skills to a higher ability at that time. Later draft picks are typically ones who have developed skills to play at the next level, but they aren't particularly fine-grooved yet. So maybe their hands aren't as fluid or their pitching mechanics aren't as good as they could be yet. They need some time for some developmental stages with great minor league coaches that have typically all played the game or at least some sort. They've all been saturated into that system. It's just something where... You know, you really can distinguish where kind of Major League is taking their picks from, but you still do need a, a healthy amount of backup, and it does provide almost another league for more players and to have more opportunity since we haven't really gone international yet. Even though there are so many private leagues that are implemented, still we have a little bit of ways to go to implement everyone coexisting together with the game of baseball instead of keeping it mainly within the states. One thing with the minor leagues, in my opinion, is just the amount of levels, too. So once you first get drafted, you go straight into your rookie ball season. That's where Bryce Harper's gone. You at least have to play that rookie ball season before you even get called up, or you are placed in the single, double, or triple A. Typically, the lower levels, single A, double A, will be where you'll be placed first if you went anywhere from you know middle to the end of the draft. Then you'll be moved up rather quickly if you've been showcasing your skills consistently and correctly and taking constructive criticism from the coaches on the field there as well. They do have a majority of your career in in their hands. And I know this game is so hard just because you do have to be productive every day, even though a Hall of Famer strikes out three times out of 10, or excuse me, gets on base three times out of 10, not strikes out. But those are just the little things where the game is hard. You need a lot of mental toughness to progress through and also that opportunity, the foot in the door. And I think the minor league level allows for the saturation of how many people love playing this game for them to go to an area, still get paid, even though it's a little bit too low to kind of even provide for their cost of living. They still have a great opportunity to play against people that are considered elite. They went through college. They've now been coined as a professional or amateur athlete there. So it is something that It's great to see and definitely is something useful. I just think that we do get a little bit of saturation. Players get stuck. Plays, pay, I should say, isn't as good. So 
players could kind of, if they don't get a, get that opportunity, they could really kind of not damage themselves because they're playing the game they love, but kind of been halted from progressing in their own personal careers if baseball wasn't giving them that opportunity. It, it weans out a lot, and there are a few, you now there are so many systems that you have to go through, and it shows you those percentages are so low that people actually make it just because there are so many little areas to go through. And when you are playing baseball, you do fail quite a bit of the time. So having a little bit more opportunity does help. And even like Mike Piazza, that was just an incredible feat on his hand to prove himself as a person and how important he was to the team. So it isn't impossible. And even even other players like Jose Altuve, his came out because he was a shorter player. Marcus Stroman, a great pitcher, a little bit shorter, still proved that he belonged there. There was a stigma around baseball not allowing certain players because they didn't have height, weight, muscle. They were basing them off of a, a set of rules that they had made on their own personal team. It's definitely something we're going to see, I think, kind of play out. I think there should be a reform of the amateur system a little bit, including our minor league and then integrating our international. So I think that we should have minor league being the starting point to integrate international play. We should be having them travel the majority. And that way, those players coming up in the next few decades will be ready to go. And hopefully within a decade, we will have a more international based baseball game. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because to my point earlier, and I love your idea of actually integrating because one of the hangups is how do we know who's the best or like, where's the best talent coming from? And so with the stats, you're just getting a number. It makes a lot of sense in that there would be hesitation in the way Major League Baseball looks at amateur talent or international talent. So yeah, mixing everybody together kind of Not only does it make the pool larger, but then you're getting more people on the same playing field in that now we have a more direct comparison to understand who's actually better than who. And I think it's important because we saw when the World Baseball Classic was first started, Japan won back-to-back titles for that. And it starts to like make you wonder, well, are we as good as we think we are? And there's a lot to be said in terms of the players that were on those rosters from the American team and our timing within the professional season, you know, it takes place during the preseason and all that. But if you look back, it's not like we had slouches. So, you know, there's a number of factors. It's hard to pinpoint any one thing, and I don't think it would be any one thing. But in terms of really knowing who's the best talent out there and who's going to, who's really worthy of being called up to try and establish a career, I, I really like your idea that way to just let's mix it up more. You know, let's let's really see. It doesn't necessarily have to be in a, a formal tournament fashion. But, you know, let's uh, yeah, let's find some ways to provide more direct comparisons of the talent, because as of right now, my understanding is that Major League Baseball, at least when it comes to the scouts and stuff, it they're looking at tools. They actually draft tools. They're not drafting based on statistics because depending on the league that you're in, your stats may not mean as much, right? You're not going to compare a high school player's stats to a college player's stats. Those are also indirectly com- comparable anyway, but you know, you kind of get the idea. Yeah, so like I guess what we'll say is maybe um I'll just use like college conferences, right? That's always a big debate, especially when you look at like college football, who's actually the best team out there. You know, these rankings come out and there's a perceived strength of the conference and stuff. And so who's who's to really say, you know, ultimately players get drafted from everywhere, both in football and baseball. So scouts and other evaluators, I think, have a tendency to look more so at tools as opposed to the stats. But that's always so subjective. And that kind of led to the whole 
Moneyball revolution in a lot of ways because you are still having a lot of misses on the prospects that you're drafting that never actually make it. I mean, we already went over the numbers, so they're not really in most players' favor. And there's there's still a lot of influences over the potential set uh, success of your career. You know, Mike Piazza had been afforded a great opportunity, and that may have been missed, and he may have never gotten to where he did had he not had the connection with Tommy Lasorda to give him a shot at actually breaking camp and getting on the team. And then look what happened. That's awesome to go on and have a Hall of Fame career. So it's very interesting. It'll never be perfect, I don't think. We'll continue to find ways to improve, but overall... Any major league sport, professional sport in America is hyper-competitive, football, basketball, hockey, etc. It's still a very small percentage of players that actually make it. And then it just, it only goes down and down from there for like just how good you end up being. You know, when you look at the Hall of Fame, it's percents of percents, right? Like less than 1% or whatever, somewhere around there. But, you know, it just goes to show it's, it's a very difficult thing to evaluate people. And I think that we are seeing a little bit of uncertainty with integration of international or amateur play just because of the fact that within the States, I feel that we are a little uncertain on, like you mentioned, the strength of play. So the quality of those players, their skills, how are they going to compare? We haven't really done a a full comparison besides the World Baseball Classic that's been newly implemented. We need to start seeing a more saturation of these international players or just integrating us. So using the minor leagues where all new rule proposals are handed out would be a great opportunity for these minor league players to go play abroad, even if it's for 10 to 15 games or integrating and having them come here, getting them experience and opportunity here, I think will ultimately move the game in the right direction. I just think we haven't had a firm confirmation that, okay, if we started to go playing other leagues, did we just win all you know, the series? Do we win the series here? Or are we splitting them? Are we losing them? In fact, we don't know that. There's so many other countries that are starting to to catch fire and catch wind of wanting to be a part of that. And I think now, like we were stuck before with statistics. And so I think implementation research would be the great way to start and implementing our minor league players. I think some of the statistics were there's about 250 or so players that are from other countries currently in the MLB out of the I think it's just under 700 total players so a good portion of our players are already international now it's just having that international play where it becomes more fun and not just between the states we do need to start talking you know with writers with players about this we have this downtime to speak of this so I think it would be a great opportunity to grow the game and our minds on on how it should be played I agree. So do you want to transition now to the baseball better than football reason segment? I will take on why baseball is better than football here today. And my reasoning will be that kind of keeping it in conjunction with our topic today with statistics that we are able to, in the sport of baseball, quantify a lot more on the play, each action that a player has, whether in football, of course, you have your your pass, your catches, your throws, but that's kind of where it's limited to that. There's not a, not variables, but different things to measure almost every little aspect of the game, really. I just think there's a lot more broad sense of things we could attach, not labeling, but, you know, showing that that skill set of that player was, you know, phenomenal in that area versus this one in this area. There's just so many different things 
things to measure in baseball to where I think it makes it a lot more enticing for viewers. As in football, of course, that pass and that catch is going to be probably the greatest thing you see besides you know the players hitting each other on the field. That would ultimately be why I think baseball is better than football just because of the skill set required and the representation of it. You get to show day in and day out your little things and you get only that one split second, maybe one pitch, one at bat that you two get. So if you're playing in football, yes, you're part of each play, but it's far more involved, whether as I may get three or four at bats a game, or if I started pitching, I may go one, two, three innings, or I may go the full length of the game. So there's a lot more room for opportunity, but also self-reflection and just really shows how much of a, a mental sport this is rather than a physical sport in football. Of course, getting the passes and the plays right is always one thing, but the individuality of a player having to hit a ball with a baseball or putting a ball on the outside corner is, is something that is truly remarkable and I think should something be highlighted. Yeah, I like this one. The fixed reliance on individuals in baseball is, I guess, how I would kind of phrase it for myself in that in football and some other sports, uh, basketball is a good example too. You can do a lot to force the ball into a single player's hands. And oftentimes that's going to be your best player, right? That makes sense. That's why you would do it. In baseball, your opportunities are more or less fixed for yourself, uh, at least as a position player going through the lineup. Pitchers, there's a little more flexibility in that the manager is going to choose who he wants to bring into the game. But once you're in, you're you're stuck there for at least a certain amount of time. And then the team is uh, putting all their trust in you to come up for them. And I, I think that's a really cool thing. You can't just overly rely on one single player on a baseball team. All right, Chris, you want to close us out today? Okay, so that concludes today's episode of The Baseball Experience. If you are looking for more content, be sure to check us out at thebaseballexp.com where you'll find this episode and others. You'll also find our blog for additional content concerning our episodes that didn't make it into today's show. When you visit thebaseballexp.com, remember to sign up for our email list so you never miss out on our next release. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Baseball Experience and check out our Baseball Experience Facebook page as well. As always, it has been a pleasure. We're your hosts, Chris and Cody Nicholson, signing off on today's episode, 9 out of 10 for the first half of the season of Baseball Experience. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you later. See you guys.